This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Mutuality Podcast. My name is Gail. And along with my co-host, Nate, right here, we just want to say thank you so much for listening to this first season of Full Mutuality. We're officially wrapping up for now and going on a much needed break, but we will definitely be back for season two. In fact, we already have a couple episodes recorded and some interviews scheduled, and we can't wait to put them together and bring you in on what we've been working on. We're also going to be changing some things up a little bit, but not too much. I don't want to give anything away. So suffice it to say, I'm really excited about what's in store. This podcast has been so great to work on. And again, I want to express our gratitude to everyone who's been supporting us. To all of you who've been listening, to our amazing partners on Patreon, Janice, who is so much more than a supporter of our work, but also a dear friend and fellow podcaster. Never Otter Even, our fellow Trekkie from Australia, who has an amazing nerdy podcast of his own. Michelle, who made a special trip out here to New York City and spent a day wandering around Manhattan with us. And Jenna, who regularly sends us encouragement and feedback on Instagram. And a big thank you to our friends and collaborators in the Dauntless Media Collective. Scott from Chapel Probation, Jessica and Kathleen from Leaving the Village, and Dan from Profane Faith. You are all amazing creators, and we're so glad to be collaborating with you. I want to switch gears now and talk a bit about today's episodes. We're releasing two on the same day because, well, today is the two-year anniversary of the Atlanta shootings, and I think it's important to discuss the different challenges we face in this country. The first episode in this pair deals with the Asian American experience more broadly and features a conversation with two of the co-founders of the Funny Asian Woman Collective, Naomi Ko and Mei Li Yang, and is guest hosted by Scott Okamoto. If you haven't listened yet, please go check that one out first. The episode you're listening to right now approaches the topic through the lens of evangelical purity culture, where we talk with Angie K. Hong, who wrote a particularly poignant article in The Atlantic, which I highly recommend reading. I'll link to it in the show notes. We all have a lot to learn about the ways purity culture harms women, but I'll admit, I don't think I ever considered to this degree how the intersection of race and gender changes how purity culture affects people. I won't spoil it for you here, so I'll just leave it at this. It's a very important lesson if we want to be as equipped as possible to fight evangelical purity culture while recognizing those who've been most harmed. Anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation with Angie K. Hong. Purity culture just impacts different bodies very differently. How it affects me as an Asian woman is very different from how it affects a black woman's body versus a brown body. I mean, there's just different nuances of how it hits. Um, but I think what's maybe different, and I and I know I'm like overgeneralizing, is I think that white women can achieve that purity. You see it so much right now with all the the white Christian influencers that are women, right? That have this like great social media platform. They're able to preach without being a pastor. They're able to influence without being, you know, overstepping their boundaries as a woman in a very conservative culture. But they still have a lot of power to influence. In that way, I think then it is next to near impossible for women of color to become pure because we're not white. There will always be something mixed in that desire for a Christian woman that's about them not being white, that messes with purity culture. 
Our guest today is Angie K. Hong, who is a writer, a worship leader, critical convener. I suppose you'll uh, provide some uh, some expansive definitions for this stuff. Um, sure. She's also the co-founder of Kinship Commons um, that creates mm-hmm. artful spaces for conversations on the margins. Um, and you live in Durham, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I sure do. I do want to call something out a little bit. It's it's funny. I, I think I talked about it a bit on um, the episode with the Funny Asian Women Collective about how um, I worked extremely hard as um, the the son of immigrants. I worked extremely hard to pick up the regional dialect that I grew up with. And as we've been kind of talking a bit, Angie, I'm hearing a regional dialect um, in your voice a little bit. Uh, as well and and not what what I suppose would be stereotypical of somebody who has the kind of phenotype that we have but then again there isn't really a stereotypical because people who look like us are Chinese or Japanese or Korean or Hmong we all look different we all have different um, speech patterns and whatnot but it sounds like you picked up your uh, regional dialect here in the U.S. Do you have a story associated with that? Is that anything that you that you kind of thought through as you were growing up, or is it just you just absorbed it as as you were? Um, do you do you you hear like a southern accent? Is that what I you're hearing? Hear I hear a southern, southern accent, accent. and I'm, so I'm like, is it because you've been in North Carolina for a while? how long have you been? In North Carolina? I grew up in I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Ah, um, okay, that explains most of my life, and. Um, my accent got really thick when I was in college because all of my college roommates who are a lot, um, Korean as well, they're from, they were from Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> so uh. my accent got like super heavy. And then, um, I moved up north to, uh, to do, to do an internship and work. And, um, the, and then I think that's when it kind of settled out because I was in like a different region and then I came back down. So I don't know what I have now. Like people, some people say like I've lost all my accent and they can't believe it when I talk. And then other people are like, you have a Southern accent. I heard the Southern accent. So it was just like, (laughs) are you from the South? Yeah. Maybe y'all are. Yeah. Y'all are sensitive to it because you you don't live here, you know? So it's a mild one Mm -hmm. for down there, but (laughs) yeah. It's super mild. Yeah. People are like, where'd your accent go? It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I lived, um, I lived in South Carolina for a few years. Um, my first year there, I think I started to pick up a slight draw. And when mm-hmm. I came back to, uh, New York, New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, my friends here Noticed told me that I sounded Southern. And yeah. I was like, uh, nope, I'm not having any of that. Um, I'm a born and raised Jersey kid. I got <laughs> so I, I worked really hard. I practiced stuff like water and coffee. And coffee. Did you really? <laughs> wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was also it's also kind of the absorption of of whatever you you know you live around. Yeah, here yeah. Every day, you just you kind know? of tend to absorb it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, um. Yeah, so to, we're releasing this episode on the um, the anniversary of the Atlanta shootings, um, which is a difficult topic to to kind of work through. Um, and I know in in our other episode that's also coming out today, um, I kind of offered some space, although it was a very humorous episode, and I, I killed the space and jumped 
into another joke a little too quickly. (laughs) Um, But I do want us to take some time to sit with um, our thoughts and our feelings. And I feel like, Angie, you could give us some good perspective because um, the the event itself plays with that intersection of um, purity culture and racism, orientalism, all of that stuff. And that's something that you are very familiar with uh, given your background. Um, would you, would you mind sharing a little bit about, um, your own kind of history growing up Asian American in, in these kinds of spaces and then what that looked like as a young woman in those evangelical areas? Wow. That was like a really big question right out the gate. So thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) We dive right in. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just do it. Let's just do this. Well, so I grew up in a, in the Atlanta area and the, the, where the first shooting happened, um, was the town right next to where I grew up. So I grew up in a kind of like almost where I went to high school was almost a, a new, it was a new suburb and there was, so the, um, the suburb like right next door. So it's still sort of kind of almost rural, like there are cows and stuff. But, um, I mean, it wasn't completely rural, but, but the shooting happened at the one that was right next to the one where I grew up. And, um, and I, what was really, um, interesting and, and devastating, right. Is that I identify, you know, I'm a Christian. I was working, I did work at an, evangelical church. I grew up sort of like in that culture. Um, so I knew where the guy was coming from, but I'm also an Asian woman. And so I knew kind of what this all meant. And, the, and I felt the grief and the devastation of it, um, as an, as an Asian woman. And, mm-hmm. um, so, so the, the, the massage parlor, so that was in that town. And then some of the women lived in sort of where all the, um, Asians live in Atlanta. Um, and so I talked to my mom about, she's like, yeah, we know where all they live. You know, they live on this one street, all their apartments are right there and their houses. And so, um, so it's, it's very close. Um, so the intersection of those two things, both things I identify with, right? Like being a Christian, understanding what it's like to grow up in purity culture. Um, the guy had a quote unquote sex addiction, was seeking help at the church. And then this, um, intersection of women of color and Asian women, especially. So, um, when it happened, I just, I mean, it was devastating. I, I had a meltdown. <laughs> and then I sort of took to, um, Twitter to process it because why not? And, um, so I was just sort of laying it out because at the time I was in, um, seminary slash divinity school and I was taking Asian American theology. I was taking, um, theorizing religion, which is a course on how religion is, um, how come, how it comes to be all the components of religion. And, um, I was taking a class in revelation. I was, ta- I was taking all these classes. And so I was just putting all of it together and spitting it out. And Mm -hmm. that resulted in me writing an article um, for the Atlantic and the after effects of that article. um, I still feel the after effects today because even now people will message me and say what the article meant to them. And um, I've been hearing a lot of stories. Sometimes they'll tell me stories 
And, you know, sometimes they'll just say, I relate to your story. Um, other times they'll tell me their story. And then other times they'll tell me their story with all the names, like they'll name names. Mm. So it's just, it's a, it's a lot to just feel the reverberation just continue now, almost two yeah. years later. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, it was like the location, the geopolitics of the location, and then my faith and then my identity, all of that was coming to a head with this, with this act of violence. And so, yeah, I've just been dealing with that ever since. Yeah. And it seems like it never, it never really stops. And I think, yeah. um, yeah, mm-hmm. between, between me and Gail, uh, we were kind of talking about the, the areas of this conversation that we can kind of find touch points and, and relating points. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as the, as the pandemic was picking up and, you know, I was getting the, the news reports in and this was prior to Atlanta. Um, but the things like, um, you know, a 36 year old, Filipino man stabbed on the subway. Um, oh, that's me. Right. Like, like I see that headline and it's me. Um, you know, and, and it, it, it keeps building. Um, and I think trying to, uh, trying to make it day by day, knowing that, that I'm like, it's, it's sort of a new thing for me because, you know, I, I spent so many years of my life trying to, I guess, rid myself of this identity. I mentioned in the other episode Mm -hmm. that um, growing up in fundamentalist Christianity, um, I was taught that my uh, racial identity was sinful Um, and never in so many words, but there were certain things that were constantly said, like Pokemon is satanic. Why? Because it relates to the Japanese pagan spirits, as they call them, the kami, mm-hmm. the gods, the things that, that are just part and parcel to what it means to be Japanese. That mm-hmm. is satanic. Therefore, mm-hmm. something in my DNA is satanic. And so, you know, growing up in that kind of a space, I worked so hard to eradicate myself of any uh, racial identifiers. Mm-hmm. And then um, to find myself suddenly having to face the fact that I am this race um and that those those headlines those news reports those are those are about me and that was a really difficult realization to come to and then there's the other side of the story um that gail was kind of uh texting me about and saying you know ah yes purity culture the Mm -hmm. the the stuff that we often come running into in um uh, in this this world of leaving evangelicalism behind uh, and trying to find our way through, um, you know, life as post evangelical um, yeah. people who are who are trying to grapple with uh, what our various sexualities mean, what our 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 bodies say what, what they're, what they're doing and communicating to ourselves and to the world around us. So, yeah. I guess when Nate was talking about having, uh, almost an awakening about his Asian American identity, I feel like that happened a lot for you, Nate, over the pandemic and, and with the Atlanta shooting, those were like two markers that sort of for you started an unraveling and an unpacking of what that means to you. Not that you never undid any 
reflecting, you know, through the years, but that really was like a, a breaking point for you. Um, I'm wondering, um, what about your story? It, was there a moment? Mm-hmm. Was there like, yeah. Angie, was there a time where you, that started to unravel for you? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've been doing this work a while. So like Atlanta, all of that was not, um, it was devastating and shocking. Yes. But was it surprising? No. Um, and I've been doing identity and, and theology work for gosh, a long while now. Um, I think what made it sort of something to, to think about or the awakening, as you mentioned, Gail, is, um, um, so unlike you, maybe Nate, I grew up in a primarily, I went to primarily white schools and things like that, but I did have an affinity space growing up. I went to, mm-hmm. I grew up in a Korean immigrant church and that weekly rhythm of going to a church community where, um, there were people like me who affirmed my humanity and existence, um, where I didn't feel like I was a foreigner or an alien or exotic. I was just a normal person who didn't have to code switch. Um, I've always, I've always had that. Um, but it wasn't until we, my husband and I, who's also Korean, we left the Korean church and we decided to try something new because we were really burned out. There's a lot of needs in immigrant churches. Mm. And um, we just felt like we were the blind leading the blind. So we just wanted to go somewhere where it was, you know, th- theologically rigorous and where people actually like went to school, like <laughs> who were like <laughs> legit, you know, and, um, and who, um, and where it was a bit more, Organized. It wasn't just everybody working for free and working so tirelessly. So, so we went and we joined a prim- primarily white church because we liked their liturgy a lot. And, um, and that's when the, the, the othering became very, very real. I, you know, experienced that growing up in all of the settings the racist taunts, the bullying, all of those things. I experienced that for sure. Um, but it wasn't until we joined a church where we thought, surely won't have to deal with this here. And then we dealt with it there that the questions just began to pour out. Um, I think primarily because my theological spiritual formation at that point was through the Korean immigrant church. I feel like there were cultural values and theological values that I felt were really good gifts. Like, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I feel like we had a lot to offer um, that like these churches were, you know, for instance, um, the churches that we were at would be wondering why there wasn't more of a sense of a community and why people just jetted out of the church after one hour, you know, like mm. 12 on the dot, everybody's gone. Like the church building's locked up. Like people just go home. Whereas the church that I grew up in, we hung out all day. We hung out till nighttime. It was mm. like our social, you know, it was, it was everything to us. And so we were like, Hey, like, this is how we, we offered that as a gift. And it was like, no, like it was really, re- it was rejected. It wasn't seen, it was seen as other. And so I think that's when the questions just started pouring out. So that was like when, like 2006 ish, okay. like, so like a few, yeah, long time. And then it just sort of started evolving as, as the multicult, the idea 
of the multicultural church became more popular. Um, and I joined those as worship leader and then later on on a national level too, with a lot of places that were trying to diversify their churches. Um, and, and then I, um, so then I, ex- I, I got exposed to even more racism there because yeah. <laughs> it was like very sinister. Um, and I'm sure, you know, yeah, Dan, Dan White Hodge and I talk about this a lot too. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that's been my journey. And, um, and then when I, so I worked at Willow Creek for two years and that's when I worked at Willow during a very interesting time. I did not want to work at an evangelical megachurch, never was on my radar. I worked for these sort of small church plant startups. Um, but I, we moved to Chicago and I, I, I swear, swear to God, no. Um, God was like, I want you to work at Willow. I got a call. They offered me the job just through a phone call. Um, I want, God said, I want you to work there because I want to show you something. So I just said, all right, I'm open. And I, and I got hired right before the 2016 election. So imagine the fallout that happened in mm. a church like that. Yeah. And then I left right as the, the allegations against Bill Hybels was, were pouring out right before mm. the New York Times one. There was a Chicago Tribune one that was like okay. the big one. And then yeah. I moved up my end date. So. Yeah, I don't know what the question was. I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> but what's my journey? That's my journey. That's my journey. <laughs> yeah, the different <laughs> things. That, and I think and it was that. like what was the awakening moment? And for you, it was moving into white church, like moving out of Korea. Yeah. That was your safe space. Church was that one place that was sort of free of what you dealt with in society and what you dealt with in school. And then you had it church. was an affinity space. You know, it it was. I wouldn't call it a, exactly a safe space because theologically, I don't know if I would have ascribed to everything, but mm-hmm. um, it was like an affinity space. Mm-hmm. It was where we could go and see people that look like us, even if we never talked about identities as Asian Americans, which we rarely did. Um, we, I still got to see that right. week to week. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that I. That I do, I wish I had, and I, I'm, I'm kind of sad, um, given, given my, my upbringing and, and kind of what had taken place over the course of my life. Um, I, I was born into a Filipino church actually. Mm. Um, but then my family moved probably almost an hour away from, from that town. So Mm. we, we couldn't stay at that church, my, my parents were looking for a church that was more local and it ended up being that, that very white fundamentalist church that, mm. um, was a, a feeder church for, I don't know if you're familiar with Bob Jones university. Yeah. Yes. Oh, um, that's yeah. what, that's yeah. the South very Carolina. That's, that's where I ended up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So oh, I, <laughs> dang. Yeah. Wow, so I, I attended the, that kind of fundamentalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I attended the, the church, um, for practically my whole life, I think at the time. Um, so for the, the first almost 20 years of my life, I was at that church, mm-hmm. attended the Christian day school all the way from kindergarten up through year 12, and then went straight over to Bob Jones University. Mm-hmm. And that, so my life was in, was embedded in this, um, white fundamentalist space. And I didn't know, yeah. I think I also internalized some of that racism. So I would, you know, visit mm-hmm. my grandma's church, which is our, our, the Filipino church that I was mm-hmm. born into. And I would kind of look around the room. I would hear the accents, the broken English, the all, yeah. all of that and, and feel like, 
ah, this is, this is inferior in some way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not, not even realizing just how much racism was just dripping out of me and, and, and hatred for myself for that part of, of who I, who I am. You know, and then I, you know, I missed out because on on the Japanese side of my upbringing, you know, my dad was was working constantly, so it's not like we interacted a whole lot on that level. Um, and I didn't participate in Saturday school. I wanted to hang out with my white friends and do white kid things like play sports. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, I had you know I had a couple Taiwanese friends who on Saturdays they were they were doing the Saturday school thing, and then I find out mm-hmm. you know many years later I find out oh there's a Japanese Saturday school too that I could have probably learned a bit about that side of 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 myself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't have those affinity spaces. So for me, the awakening started to, to come at a point in life. I think when I, when I noticed it and then I looked back over the course of my life and then started putting some pieces together was when I was working, uh, for, uh, an evangelical megachurch. And I, I believe it was in one of the articles that you wrote where you said that, um, people of color who are hired as worship leaders mm-hmm. in churches, um, are also given the duty of educating a congregation yeah. on that kind of ethnic diversity that many aren't equipped with. Um, and I remember I, I wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even a, working as a worship leader. I, I led worship um, simply because of, you know, my musical upbringing, but my, my job at the church was in children's ministry and I was running the children's and family programming. Mm-hmm. And I remember our executive pastor one Sunday after service, uh, he was having a conversation with this black woman and she stood out because it was the first time I had seen a black woman in this church of 1100, 2000 people. And I'm like, Oh my God, there's, <laughs> there's a black woman at our church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I remember our executive pastor came up to me and said, Hey, do you have any ideas about how to get more, um, more, more diversity at our church? I'm like, I just, I hang out in the children's wing all day. <laughs> what do you want from me? Yeah. Um, and I like, and that's when it dawned. I, I think I had this moment where I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not like these other guys here. Mm. I looked at our, at our staff listing and I'm like, oh my God, I am the only non-white person on staff, a staff of 30. Mm. And then they, they eventually did hire um, a couple others, but you know, I went back to the website last year just to take a look and we're back to square one. There's one non-white person on staff. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, that kind mm. of, um, yeah, I, when I, when I read your piece there, I was like, oh yeah, I wasn't even hired as a worship leader. And, and yeah, yeah that's something that, that happens that, 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 that homework assignment that's given yeah. to us and none of us are, are equipped for it. You know, I didn't study, uh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't do ethnic studies in, in college. Yeah. <laughs> You're leading me into a question I have for Angie. What led you into Asian theology? Am I saying it right? Is it Asian theology? Asian American theology. Um, well, I was really interested in it for a while. Um, I'm trying to think of when I first heard about, I think I was just seeking there. Um, 
a few years, oh, let's see. It was so, I feel like it was such a long time ago, but um, sort of early on when I started to do things on a more national level, I would always go up to like that one Asian speaker or workshop thing and, you know, just kind of talk with them. And so just sharing resources pointed me to some um, books by Asian American authors. And then that sort of spilled into like theological books by Asian American authors. And now, I mean, there's so much out there. Um, like people, I, I think it's like such a hidden thing because it's not taken seriously. So non-white sort of theologies are considered like second, third tier so like somebody like a James Cone, like black liberation mm. theology, that's considered a very sideline, like marginal, like if you have extra room, maybe pick up a book or two, but don't take it seriously. So if you can imagine if that's what it's like with black literature, then Asians is basically non-existent. Mm. So I had to actually go out and find these things. I hunted, I, you know, I, I looked all around, I asked around and I finally sort of stumbled upon a whole organization of Asian American, um, theologians, women, uh, women theologians and pastors. Um, so I stumbled upon like this great treasure trove of things. And so when I was in school, um, they were offering Asian American just like as an offshoot, um, just like, Oh, let's just try it out. So yeah, I signed up for that. I took two semesters of that actually. Wow. It's really good. Yeah. It's a relatively young field. It's, it's mm. young, you know, maybe the seventies is when it sort of wow. started to, yeah. That's fascinating to me. I think because of the, um, I, I, I'd be incredibly unfamiliar with some of the markings of that, um, mm -hmm. and, and what that kind of theology would look like mostly because of the kind of bifurcation that that happened in my own mind about my Asian identity yeah. um, or Asian American identity and my Christian identity yeah. and how <laughs> never the twain shall meet as it, as it were. So yeah. it's, it's difficult for me to, to kind of wrap my mind around that, which is, mm -hmm. is I guess for you, that's not something that you would have even given a second thought to guess. And I think probably because, you know, your, your background as a Korean American probably has statistically speaking, it's very likely that you would have grown up Christian. Um, in, <laughs> that's so true. In, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, so I do want to say something about that because um, this is really important, right? This focus on, so the reason why race is just so resisted in church conversation is because this whole idea of identity in Christ, identity mm -hmm. in Christ, everything else does not matter. Like your body does not matter. And um, I think something that's really interesting is I wonder if by saying that, because I ascribe to that too, right? Like the world will fade away. Mm -hmm. We we transcend our bodies. We're none of that matters. We're just all about Christ. Um, and that would be amazing, except we were given these bodies that these, what they call particularities, right? We were born with particularities and that's not for nothing. That's not, you know, God just didn't say, Oh, let's just make a bunch of random people. I mean, that's not, God takes so much time in creating every single little thing like flowers, right? 
Same with us. So we're meant to embody our bodies that we were given. But I think there's this notion of, well, none of that matters because your identity should be in Christ. Um, never mind the fact that Jesus had a body. From the mm. moment Jesus was born, Jesus was a politicized body. And people don't really talk about that. Jesus died. Mm. The body died on a cross. There was like blood. And actually, he talked about blood, right? This is my blood. This is my body. Eat and drink. So I don't. I don't want to go into preaching. Sorry, um, <laughs> it's not the crowd for that. But like, it, it's interesting that a, you 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 brought that up, and it, it reminded me of a conversation we had with a friend of ours um, when uh, when all of the the fallout from from the Hillsong, the release of the Hillsong documentary, yeah. and and the, the the church itself, kind of the, the beginning of the very public collapse. Um, mm. I reached out to a friend of mine. Well, we we became friends afterwards. I, I connected with her because she was a member of Hillsong Boston. I was a member of Hillsong NYC, mm. and I got connected to her through some of those connections. And mm. when I reached out to them, and we had them on the podcast, and they they were telling a story about about coming out um and it was such a harrowing tale because they came out to their team leader who is a black woman and the, the uh her team leader was saying things like well why is this so why do you need to come out why is this such a such a big deal like what identity ge- gender sexuality mm-hmm. what is what is that why? And mm-hmm. she's like, well, don't, don't you ever consider the importance of being a, a black woman? Like, how can you just hide? They're like, well, mm-hmm. no, the first, the first thing for me is who I am in Christ. Yeah. And it, that, that broke my heart because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so it's much richness common. there. Yeah. yeah. It is very common. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Theology. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Heavy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's just, um, I feel like it's almost like denying that is denying that Jesus lived or something. I mean, it's, I know that's a strong thing to say, but Gnosticism, I mean, that's like what it's about. Like Jesus actually didn't exist. It's an idea. Jesus was like a spirit. And that's, that was like, they put the kibosh on that. It's so long ago. Why are we still mm-hmm. talking about that? Like, why? <laughs> it's just like, why are right. we denying Um, those things, I mean, actually, I mean, I know why, but, um, but the thing is the idea of coloniality really made, um, the idea of transcendence of your body, a very, um, appealing concept. It it was, it was necessary for coloniality to separate spirit from body. And so this idea of transcending your body is, it's not as much a Christianity thing. It was sort of Christianity and enlightenment kind Mm -hmm. of met and decided to make that so, so they could have slaves, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just. Do you yeah. care to to unpack that a little bit for people? Like, I know you've made the connections and you studied it, but for like people who are listening, going, okay, yeah, sorry. I know it's so like layered, <laughs> so layered. Yeah, so like I've heard you speak about coloniality previously, and I'm trying to mm-hmm. maybe would it would it be helpful to kind of paint the distinction between coloniality and colonizing, and and how maybe there's a relationship oh, yeah. versus. I heard that when know. I talk with Dan about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so <laughs> they are. 
they're um they're not completely separate but they are distinct okay so there's um there's a colonizing which is like literal occupation of land and bodies and subjection to violence and all of that stuff um and then there is coloniality which is more about it's kind of more meta it's about like the ideals the 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 theory i'm doing a really bad job explaining this by the way see <laughs> y'all thought okay. i was academic i'm just like blown smoke. so like right, we, won't, um, we won't tell your professors <laughs> yeah don't don't tell them um <laughs> but um so the idea of coloniality right is is a concept a framework for which people like justify their life so okay. i think um so there's this thing called the colonial matrix of power coloniality is about who creates this framework and the ideals that we all sort of live in that are the norms that are it's what's considered human what's valid what kind of knowledge is the truth versus not the truth which is outside the colonial matrix of power so so for instance like if you're talking about white supremacy white supremacy is sort of saying that like white european descent that force is who defines um, what is true in this world. So black folks, brown folks, like they fall outside of those ideals, which is why it's easy for them to have not been counted as human, as fully human, three-fifths of a human. Mm-hmm. That is all coloniality at work. And so if 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 it's just logical that whiteness is the the ideal the sophistication the way to to be then um and then you have black folks who are three-fifths of a human then slavery cool like we're good with it you know and then um along with the enlightenment the bible right the bible justified slavery certain verses all of that when it's looked through that lens of the coloniality and matrix of power and enlightenment then that is also justified And something that I learned just recently this year is the Bible did not, was not written in verses. There was a versification that happened during the enlightenment, right? And so that enabled the enlightenment of like deduction. So like taking little pieces of data, cherry picking to create an overall argument. That's a very enlightenment. That's a Baconian, (laughs) Francis Bacon, Baconian like concept that people took that concept and applied it to the Bible to, to justify, and it justified slavery. It justified violence towards women. I mean, all sorts mm. of stuff. Um, and it continues today. Yeah. <laughs> we cherry pick Bible verses all day long. Yeah. I mean, that's a and very, it makes, it, does, it makes me think, um, and, and possibly a, a similar application. If I'm, if I'm learning mm-hmm. well now, I'm your student. Um, <laughs> if, that's if I'm, scary. That's scary. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm following your, your thread here, Angie, Mm-hmm. It's I, you could probably correlate it to th- seeing how Christians, by and large, evangelicals in particular, see white theologians as default, right? Like there is okay. theology proper, and then right. the theologies of other racial and ethnic identities get labeled black yeah. liberation theology, womanist yeah. theology, that That's they right. all fall under other, other labels, but theology mm-hmm. is the white man's. Yeah. Historic tradition. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So, so, so to say, to say white man's theology almost doesn't compute Yeah, because that's, that's not a thing. It's probably why yeah. we absolutely <laughs> shouldn't be saying it out loud because it yeah. makes people go, what? And then you go, yeah, but we do it for everyone else. Um, yeah. I want to go back to your point on, uh, on the Bible and the verse, versification and enlightenment for myself. I know mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, I unpack things because whatever area of your own marginalization ends up standing out at some point. So for me, I'm white. <laughs> That's not it. It was being mm-hmm. a woman in church that definitely started to, yeah. to, to rub up, right? Like mm-hmm. being leadership and, and all the other leaders are male and being the mm-hmm. only woman at the table. And also like, you know, yeah. you'd make a point. The guys would ignore you. And then another guy would sympathize with you and make your point, like repeat you verbatim. And everyone would look at him and go, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And you're like, but that's what I, that guy you're literally like I just mentioned that he just copied I had that what idea I said years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> like those kind of moments where you're just like, Oh, it's really hard for some people to see women as their equals and to accept that. Like, oh, yeah. but I think when I started digging into that, when you talked about how the Bible has been used, that, that moment where I figured that out when you said, you know, it wasn't always there. I was like, I know this, I know this. And it was because I was looking into wives submit to your husbands in Ephesians and looking yeah. into the original language and noticing in my Bible, wait, it says it in italics, submit. Why is that in italics? And then realizing, oh, in the original language, there's no word. There's no verb. They're just pulling from mm. the verse, the verse that wasn't in the original language as a verse, but, yeah. you know, the verse before. And then learning, oh, this is where they put in a new heading you know, about mm-hmm. marriage. And mm-hmm. it's like, wait, mm-hmm. that wasn't, these are assumptions, right? Like these, yeah. there's yeah. a, like you said, there's a lot that went into where they broke things up, how they chose mm-hmm. to head things. Um, the, the context they chose to view it as changes everything. Mm-hmm. Like if you mm-hmm. view that as like the verse before wives submit to your husbands is submit one to another, which is interesting because mm-hmm. then you don't need to say wives submit to your husband. Like mm-hmm. I'm not even finding the right words. It just doesn't make sense to, yeah. to have to like, okay, both you do this with each other. By the way, women do yeah. this with your husbands. Like you just, you just finished saying that, but like mm-hmm. learning that that didn't have to be the word, the verb, the, the, like that was chosen as the context, but it doesn't, yeah. you can look at the bigger context of what the bigger passage was saying and choose a different mm-hmm. thing to highlight as wives to your husbands. Right. And there's mm-hmm. debate about that. But I, to me, that was just mind blowing. I was like, what? That wasn't in the Bible. What? This is how interpreters chose to frame it. And like, this is where they chose to insert a new passage and, and it, like just looking through the text, mm. the original language and seeing the, the, the actual like autographs or the copies of them and like what the language mm. looked like and how it was in the, in the scrolls and like just staring at that. I mean, we're so lucky to have access to that kind of stuff to be able to see and to analyze and to study it. But I, that was just mind blowing for me. Like we, we mm. make a lot of assumptions about the verses, the, how everything yeah. is and just go, well, this is what it is. This is what it's saying. Yeah. But yeah. as a person who's bilingual, it's objective. I'll read a Bible in French and I'll be like, whoa. Yeah. Like these don't say the same thing as the English. Like all you need to know is two languages and you start to already catch on to how much translation plays a yeah, part right. in your understanding of everything. Yeah. Yeah. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. If that was, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but I was trying to, I was just trying to relate to, <laughs> to the, no, you made it true for you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, that definitely is true for you. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I I wonder sometimes what would have happened if there were never verses. It was mm. just you couldn't you couldn't take anything out of context. You had to tell the whole story yeah. every time. Yeah, different world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yet here we are. <laughs> right. Here we are. Translation would have been an interesting uh, exercise, I'm sure. 
Right. Yeah. Probably mm-hmm. a lot more tedious, but I think there would be more conversations. I know. Um, yeah. I don't know if you you saw the um, uh, the documentary 1946 that came out. Um, yeah. It was oh. basically. I was I was somewhat disappointed with the documentary itself because some of the trailers that were coming out were pointing to something different, um, oh. and, and 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 it was still kind of beautiful in its own right. But essentially traced how the word homosexuality came to appear in the English Bible um, and, and where the, the first time that um, those Greek words were put into those were words. translated into homosexuality. And it didn't actually happen until the Revised Standard Version was translated in 1946. And there was a lot of debate. There were people writing in and essentially what it kind of boiled down to, which was a little bit difficult to get from the documentary, but much easier to get from the trailers, was that somewhere along the the way one of the one or more of the translators they were they were trying to ensure that the bible stayed relevant for the time mm. and one of the big conversations in culture during the mid 40s was this burgeoning idea of sexuality and these people in same sex relationships you know and mm. these translators thought well, we need the Bible to speak to our time. So mm. this Greek word that we don't know what to what to put there, mm. let's go with homosexuality because it kind of fits, uh, right? There's uh, there's yeah. something in there that kind of fits. And oh, the next thing you know, mm-hmm. the NIV, they see that the RSV did it in one place, but that same Greek word appears three or four more times, mm. but they didn't translate into homosexuality there. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's take homosexuality from that passage and apply it to those verses. So by the time the NIV comes out, it's not just in one place in the Bible. Now it's in five places. And then the ESV comes out in what was it? 2001. And they decide, well, not only to, uh, to severely masculinize the Bible, but also to, to take homosexuality and apply it to eight or 10 more verses. So, Yeah. So now you have this part and parcel with the the Bible, Mm. (laughs) the English Bible, really, Mm -hmm. um, is this this homophobic ideology. Mm. Wow, that's that's fascinating. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time. My brothers and my sisters' time. My nieces and my nephews' time. How much time do you want for your progress? I hate you, naturally. And I hate black people. Things are going to get worse before they get better. What is presented to me as an American does not look like me. Because you're not allowed to be a black man in corporate America. You give us a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, uh, and then you ask me you know, whether I approve of violence, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening right now. And you know what? We need a space where we can debrief some of it and deconstruct. If you've been looking for a POC-centered podcast that engages with intersectionality, religion, critical race theory, and some hip-hop culture, then you need to check out Profane Faith. I'll be your host, Daniel Whitehodge, and we go in every other week. So check us out wherever you find your podcasts, or check us out at whitehodgepodcasts.com 
to see what other platforms we're on. Cool? Aight. Peace. It's making me think of purity culture. <laughs> yeah, We're talking about sexuality mm-hmm. and you were talking about yeah. embodiment before. And um, mm-hmm. we went into, um, and, I, and I'm good with us going back to just the topic of what embodiment means from an Asian perspective. And I know for you, I mean, Nate and I, Nate, you were kind of uh, alluding to this before, but we have those conversations together where we're both relating to each other from a different place, you know, where I'm identifying Mm -hmm. from the marginalization of being a woman and Nate is from an Asian perspective. And there's things he's explaining to me about his context and things I'm explaining to him about my context. And I'm thinking as an Asian woman, you've got both of those pieces together um, to look through and to have to, you know, the kind of compounding forces together both perspectives, both of those marginalizations at the same time. Um, I'm wondering when it comes to um, purity culture, how has that been an unraveling for you? If it's something you want to share, but I know it's something you've written about and it has to do with embodiment as well. Yeah. I, well, I mean, purity culture hits women of color very differently. Um, it hits our bodies differently because there's an added, there's, there's layers of race and you've mentioned, um, Orientalism and like exotification of, of our bodies just in general. And then ornamentalism too. And I think, I think all that comes into play. The, the idea being purity culture is again a very colonial concept. I'm going to keep coming back to this, but I, I do feel like, so like in, in a way that white males who have the power, who, who have the knowledge, um, who own knowledge, basically, they, they can do things like have sex outside of marriage or, and they, you know, it's considered just, um, you know, momentary weakness or, or like with the Atlanta shooter, like he just had a bad day and, and wow. be forgiven. Right. Right. Um, like easy to forgive the church. It, we must forgive because we must protect. Um, and then I think, it hits. So then the woman is blamed. But then if you take like white woman versus woman of color, that's also another lens through race. And so Mm -hmm. it impacts purity culture just impacts different bodies very differently. How it affects me as an Asian woman is very different from how it affects a black woman's body versus a brown body. I mean, there's just different nuances of how it hits. Um, But I think what's maybe... mm, What's maybe different, and I and I know I'm like overgeneralizing, is I think that white women can achieve that purity. You see it so much right now with all the the white Christian influencers that are women, right? That have this like great social media platform. They're able to preach without being a pastor. They're able to influence without being, you know, overstepping their boundaries as a woman in a very conservative um, culture. But they still have a lot of power to influence. They can, they can wear whatever they want. You know, a lot of them wear like midriffs on stage. I mean, there's no way that anybody could get away with that. That's not why. Um, and they can achieve, and they're all married to like their best friend who happens to be like this great guy, you know, great right. white dude. Yeah. And, um, I think in that way, I think then it is not possible. Or next to near impossible for women of color to become pure because we're not white and we'll mm. never be white. We can never assimilate to that. There will always be something mixed in that desire mm. for a Christian woman um, that's 
that's about them not being white mm-hmm. that messes with purity culture. So yeah, we're, we are not beneficiaries of purity culture in many ways. That is fascinating because, um, you know, I think it was, who wrote the book on purity culture? There's the so one, many. the one that, um, that kind of became the, the bestseller. Is it Linda K. Klein? You're talking about the book pure? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I unfortunately haven't read it. It's, it's on my, um, TBR list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have heard such good things and I've listened to her in interviews mm-hmm. and she does have a, a, an eye-opening perspective, but I, especially for those of us who are kind of discovering this as we're, we're mm-hmm. kind of shedding some of those, those blinders that we grew up with, mm-hmm. uh, from our traditions of origin. And, and yet hearing you talk about this and I, and there was another podcast, mm-hmm. I think it was reclaiming my theology um yeah that you were man, on. you really did your research <laughs> either yeah. that or I do too many podcasts <laughs> well doing a google search for angie hong podcasts gave quite the the list i was like oh man where do i go with this and then and i'm like well i i, I think oh, i opened man. up a couple and i'm like almost um, embarrassing and no offense to white people but i don't think i want to hear white hosts today so um i <laughs> so so reclaiming my theology okay cool people of color let's let's do it i'm, yeah, I'm here for yeah, this yeah. one that one was and good. and that was yeah. i i really enjoyed that conversation and i think that was where you 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 brought up those ideas of the differences in how purity culture hits white women as opposed to women of color. And, and I almost wonder, I don't know because I haven't read the book, but I almost wonder if that's probably a blind spot for someone like Linda K. Klein, who might not be able yeah. to recognize. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm sitting here speculating, kind of, kind of giving yeah, better than that. But, no, but yeah. how, can you, how can you speak as something you haven't lived? Like I'm listening to this and this is like brand new in my mind as a thought. Well, and I'm like, um, so I have also been looking into like who's written about purity culture and they tend to be white women. So I think this is really interesting. Um, the, the sort of premier researcher of purity culture, her name is Sarah Mosliner and she teaches somewhere in Michigan. Um, in her studies with purity culture, she's done a ton of research, has written a lot of academic things and other sorts of materials and interviewed whenever there's a purity culture article, she's usually quoted. But she reached out to me and she said, um, I'm doing that after I wrote the article, my article, um, all, you know, I was hearing from all sorts of people. And she reached out to me saying, I'm doing a research study called the um, After Purity Project. Um, we're, you know, giving resources like healing resources. So please point people my way. I'd like to offer my organization to you as a resource. And I asked her, well, please tell me how you nuance this for Asian women and women of color. And she was quick to say, oh, well, we're all white. And I wrote her back and I said, well, I'm not going to recommend people to your organization who don't understand the nuances because I care. I care about this stuff. I care about the people who are reaching out to me. I'm not going to do that. And our conversation has evolved since then for sure. But now she teaches whatever classes she teaches on um, purity culture. She always brings race into the conversation Mm. because purity culture and white supremacy are so intertwined. She cannot separate them anymore. And there are some black scholars who have written about this. So she's, she's not the only one. And Linda K. Klein is definitely not the only one. Um, But there are no Asians. I even asked my, my little Asian American woman's like theologian group, like who has written as an Asian woman about, 
purity culture and nobody said anything. I mean, they couldn't. Mm. And so I was wondering if it's high time for it because, um, the the purity culture with relationship to Asian women manifests in very deadly ways, as we've seen. Um, that the yeah. response to Asian women mm-hmm. to to I guess you know for for lack of of, of anything of any better analogy in, in my mind at the moment mm-hmm. is not the further purification of the woman, but the eradication, the the eradication of the temptation, which is the Asian woman, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So <sighs> it, it it plays out yeah. so differently, and, and, and yes, like you were saying, it plays out very differently for for Black women as it does for Latinx women, for for mm-hmm. uh, as it does for white women, yeah. and as we've seen, it manifests in Asian women's deaths i i'm a i'm aware i just want to name this um because i know we've i I know we're talking about atlanta and this is this is the atlanta shooting um Mm. i do want to say something about that i feel like there is this kind of feedback loop Mm -hmm. between violence and action and one triggers the other and then it just sort of happens all over again and it's almost, I've read some things about this where in the Black Lives Matter movement too, there's a need for some sort of cataclysmic event for people to have a wake up and to change. And that usually is the dead bodies. And focusing on that can sort of enact almost a religiosity, sort of like a ritual practice of the death. Hmm. And... um we definitely want to and need to take care of these actual people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and talking about how they died more than how they lived is mm. the lived reality is um, it, it, it's a slippery slope. Like I, I don't discount like that, that, ha- you know, of course it happened. We should talk about it. Um, but I feel like there's like this really weird feedback loop that's happening right now where it's like all the hashtags, all the events, they just sort of like are spouted out like in a list as like, and that's why I'm changing. Like people had mm-hmm. to die so that I change. And I, mm-hmm. I, I just want to be careful because we care about these communities living too. <laughs> like we yeah. on the living. Um, and we want to take care in how we sort of stage that scene when we yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. This yeah. is super insightful. And, you know, these are things sometimes people don't take the time to, to like, I don't know. I feel like I've had a lot of uh, awakenings from my friends who are not white about, hey, like, and even some white friends repeating what they hear from their black friends saying, stop yeah. showing the dead bodies. That's really traumatizing and disrespectful. Like, you don't need to, when you post about it, do that. You're harming a community by showing that all the time. Like, the first time I heard that was like, that was a new, it was a new thought. And then it was like, of course that makes complete sense. Like that, that should just, that shouldn't be occupying how we go about having these conversations. So like you're bringing in a whole other layer to not just not showing about it, but even in our words, even how we talk, what aspects we're focusing on. Are we focusing on the lives of Asian women, the joys, the humanity, the, the positives, the, um, yeah, like that is, that's how you you humanize people when you recognize yeah. they're human and you talk about it. 
right? Mm. Yeah. And, and the work that is happening, that's been happening, right? There's a, there's a lot of organizations that have been doing this work for a long time. And so I just, I, I want to give a shout out to that work that's mm-hmm. being done. And, um, yeah, I, I don't want to get to a point where there are so many to talk about that it's just like, yeah. I don't want to use that as a jump off point for people caring about these people. Does that right. make sense? I, right. I, yeah. so anyways, I, I know that there are awakenings definitely that happen. Like I don't want to, um, I, I, I definitely validate like your experience, Nate, like what you said, because you're not alone in, in what happened there, right? Pandemic and then Atlanta, then New York. I mean, all of that did happen. I think what happens now after the awakening, after so many, I think is still slippery. Like people are still trying to figure out and trying to work through their identity. Mm-hmm. I'm there for it. I want that to happen. I think that's great work. So mm-hmm. like, I, I definitely want to sort of like focus on that. I don't even know how we got on that topic. <laughs> um, but yeah, just to, just to say like the, those events like still impact us, right? Like they still yeah. hit us in a way that is, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sad and enacts something though. So I, I, I want to talk about the work that's being done anyway. Mm-hmm. I think um, we went from purity culture to how that embodies and different, like that's the, the, the trajectory. We took. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, so like I've had people say like, when what you know what happened Atlanta happened I almost identified with the shooter more as a Christian than I would as like a woman or Asian woman or even Asian man which is very telling of like how purity culture just sort of works Mm -hmm. It, it, it sort of works where it's like the the guy um needed forgiveness needed tended to like the guy is sick he's mentally ill you know, we need to take care of him. And then on the other side of things, like, well, who's taking care of them? So, I, and even like my mom's church. So my mom, we, I grew up in the, the, the oldest church, longstanding church in Atlanta. That's Korean. And when I asked my mom about the woman, she was like, oh yeah, we don't talk about them. Like we don't associate with those people because they're, you know, they're working a job that's not honorable, like as a Korean culture. So there's all sorts of layers of complication and mm. I think like purity culture just like infiltrates. Oh, it just messes everything up. I just, yeah. I don't know. It, it just, I, I do think it is a function of white supremacy and that's very internalized and it works very well within shame based Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. Not all Asian cultures are shame based, but I think for the shame based ones, it, it, that sort of like guilt, moral purity, um, plays in very well with shame-based guilt, um, honor, obeying, obedience. Yeah. All that goes hand in hand, which is why it works so well with a lot of Asian, a lot of Asian folks. Which is why a lot of white churches, when they diversify, they can kind of start with Asians. It's like safer because Asians sort of more fit into the ideology of white um, sort of. Western European. There's a kind of acquiescence perhaps. Yeah. Like a, yeah. Like a very reformed sort of feeling of like Mm -hmm. just being in a constant state of guilt and being never good enough, you know, like always um, guilty. (laughs) Like the, um, (laughs) I, I think I was, uh, I think it was in, in the other episode where, um, we were kind of, you know, joking about the, the Korean, uh, Han, um, and, uh, the, I'm about to complicate that too. Sorry. I do this. I do this. I mess things up. So Han, people talk about Korean Han as like this 
almost it's genetic. Like it's in medical books that we're born with this ability to deeply feel sorrow, like this really deep lament that is just baked into our DNA. Hmm. And I think what's interesting about it, and this has somewhat of a hopeful tone, I think, a redeeming value, if you will. Um, so Han was a term that was invented for us by the Japanese who colonized us. Mm-hmm. They created that term to say, oh, the poor Koreans. If you look at uh, um, some of the Korean art that they let us do, um, it looks super like a kindergartner could could do this art. Like it's just super simple because we were seen as like these very like primitive, childish, weak people. And so Han was given to us like, oh, they have so much like sadness that it's, it's, um, they're easy to dominate. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they gave us that sort of stamp, like they are Han. They're all about Han. Um, and then, so then later on, um, Koreans went in and they signif, they re-signified the word to mean this like sorrow, sorrow sort of intent so much that it's like baked into our DNA and it's like in our blood and stuff. Um, mm. So I, I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about because I don't want Koreans to be, you know, just, I don't want all Koreans painted as we know how to weep. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I think another Korean, very Korean concept that is talked about too, like in these like religious um, Christian settings is the concept of Chong. So Chong and Han are very closely related and Chong is about like a very enmeshed sort of love. Like they almost call it like a sticky kind of love. It's something that you can't let go of. So a lot of Koreans will think it's really annoying, right? Like Chong Temune, like because of Chong, I have to pay for my cousin's dentist bill or I have to, you know, I have to take care of these people. But really it's more about care and the fact that there is no way that we can be separated from one another. And theologians have really written about this as like the love of Christ. So like, okay, sorry, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about Jesus again. But like Jesus's love for us is this Chong kind of love to the point of dying on the cross. And that he died and like took on blah, blah, blah. And, and the, that whole like Lent and what Lent is about, that kind of enacts this sort of like level of Han of actually like lamenting the fact that he loved us so much to the point of death. So like those are sort of like together, Han and Chong, they are like, they're really like sewed into one another. And I just kind of wanted to put that out there. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I, yeah. I do feel like I, I, I want to like expand my, um, uh, my lexicon when it comes to, um, to other Asian cultures because we're all like our, yeah. our, our story. And I realized that, you know, uh, the term Asian American is a, is a political term, not a, um, not a racial term. And, and yeah. so there's, there is this, this shared experience that we all have, despite the fact that we come from so many different, you know, ethnic backgrounds yeah. um, and we don't have, yeah. And we don't have some, some unifiers. Um, I think it was Naomi in the other episode who mentioned that Asian Americans don't have 
like the the unifier of say Spanish, like Latin Americans, yeah. um, have, a common journey, right? Um, and and there are certain things that as Asian Americans we don't like our histories are not quite as intertwined, mm. even though we we are treated so much the same way. That's right. But like Japanese Americans don't have um, slavery on the transcontinental railroad. That's the, that's a distinctly Chinese American experience. But Chinese Americans don't have uh, the World War II incarceration. And then there's the mass adoption that was pretty significant for the Korean American community. It still is uh, significant for the Korean American community. And and there are things, these things that, that separate us and create this uniqueness. But I think if we just look around the table and, and just observe our phenotype and how whiteness interacts with us as people group. I mean, Vincent Chin, you know, is a, is a classic, classic example of how whiteness interacts with us and how, how it sees us that I think if we can, if we can break through these barriers, like I, you know, I, 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 I want to learn more about my Korean American brothers and sisters. Um, I want to learn more about my, my Hmong American brothers and sisters and Taiwanese American brothers and sisters, because we, we cross these borders in order to work against the supremacist culture that, that exists in, uh, in this country. So, uh, so thank you for sharing that with me. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. We don't talk about our trans Pacific journeys. We just, cause, because a lot of us come here with a, with a clean slate, like mm-hmm. none of it happened. Right. Yeah. The more that we talk about it though, the more we can really, really complicate the monolithic nature of our, our yes, realities. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey everyone. I'm Jessica from the leaving the village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. I was thinking about um, perhaps there's a sense and maybe um, maybe you can speak into this a little bit more. But but the, as I look at how um, white supremacy functions, there's almost this exploitation of like you were alluding to mm-hmm. of how uh, these shame based Asian cultures can often be exploited. The shame in those cultures, the the self-loathing, the the internalized guilt can be exploited by white supremacy in this way that then manifests in the absorption of these of these cultures, the mm-hmm. the then, you know, the colonization. I mean, Christianity mm-hmm. isn't 
native to Korea and yet it's synonymous with Korean Americans almost. Um, when you, when you, when you think of Korean American churches, you know, they're, they're everywhere. And you think of, I mean, I remember, um, at Bob Jones University, the, the, the largest minority population at Bob Jones were the Korean immigrants who were being sent over from South Korea to live mm. in and among you know, the, the, the population at Bob Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I yeah, it, it, it's, that to me seems uh, interesting, uh, like a, like a thread <laughs> I almost want to pull on a little bit. Oh yeah, they're so enmeshed, right? And like Willie Jennings talks about this, there is sort of this baptism into what? Into whiteness. Like he talks about baptizing, being baptized into race. And I think shame-based Asian cultures are very amenable to that because it's sort of baked into cultural practices and values. So it's very easy for that sort of assimilation to happen. But eventually assimilation doesn't uh, work for us. You know, we find ourselves sort of like choking on assimilation. Like when we take, when we do like communion, we're like choking on the bread because that's not the body of Christ that we're, we're meant um, to be in. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. I took it like really, I took it really Jesus mode. Sorry if that was triggering. That's okay. Um, I I think some of that, one of the things that I think Gail and I have both sort of been trying to, to work through is um, reclaiming some of that language um, and, and pulling it, you know, pulling it away from uh, the harmful ideologies and trying to yeah. find what fits, what sticks. I mean, we, we're both um, pretty agnostic, you know, some days leaning into into the atheist side, sometimes leaning to, to theist. Mm. But we both attend a um, United uh, Church of Christ church um okay. here uh, here where i am and we're very I, we're both very close to the pastor you know she's she's fantastic she's become a fantastic part of our lives i can get down with the yeah, ucc yeah we I'm, yeah. I'm 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 a big fan of 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 this church it was uh the first church in new jersey to perform a same-sex wedding it was the it was founded as an abolitionist church it had it's mm-hmm. got a great history um mm-hmm. and yeah i think being in those spaces i don't know gail if if you want to chime in a little bit on that but like being in that space has been challenging because some of the language can be triggering yeah but what i what i appreciate i guess i think coming out of and i'm curious about you know if you you came out your korean church was it evangelical and i know we're running out of time so i don't know what, what we're gonna be able to touch into but i know oh. for myself coming out of evangelicalism um i think what i appreciate about my church one of the things is i'm free to ask any questions i want like i don't feel like i have parameters on if i'm upset about what jesus said if I disagree with the Bible, it, like things mm-hmm. that to me used to be like, um, you know, for example, slaves um, submit to your masters, right? Like we talk about cherry picking. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, as having this conversation with someone saying to me that, you know, his problem with young people today, and he's talked to them is they don't read their Bibles. And the reason they don't read their Bibles is because if they read through it all, then they'd have to throw out pieces of the Bible because it doesn't fill their lifestyle. And he was coming from a very evangelical lens. And I was thinking, I, I would hope there was pieces of the Bible that, they would find disturbing and not follow if I've read through the Bible and there are pieces of the Bible where, right. like you said earlier, like people yeah. have used it for slavery, like to, yeah. to form that position. It's not hard to do with certain mm-hmm. passages and I'm not a theologian and maybe there's some great explanations behind it, but I'm okay with taking that and going that 
sounds harmful. And and mm-hmm. saying that about any passage of the script, that's not something I'm a, I was allowed to do in evangelical tradition to like ask the hard questions, to feel certain ways, to think certain things. Um, you know, and and I think one of the the things my my reverend did once is she was talking about how you know, Jesus made a comment to a woman and she rebuked him and he rethought things. And I was like, Oh, like she, like yeah. she was talking about the cr- the crumbs falling off the table yeah. and the, the dog eating and like the woman yeah. just like pushed back and, yeah. and Jesus cha- reframed and like rethought through what she was saying. And, mm-hmm. um, I guess I'd never seen Jesus in that light. Like he needed a woman to set him straight. And I was like, what, we're allowed doing that. Women can ask questions, you know, <laughs> and hearing my reverend say she was upset at how Jesus initially handled that, you know? And yeah. I was like, we're, we're allowed to do you that here. Do that? I can do that. I can, I can do this. Yeah. This could be part of my, my faith. So then once you start doing that though, mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's a slippery slope, but it is a slip. I mean, in the sense that I was told it's a slippery slope. It, there's a lot of questions you start asking once you're allowed to start asking questions and it could be overwhelming. So definitely going to a church where the doors are open to explore, to ask mm-hmm. the hard things. There's yeah. a lot, you, you just get more and more questions the more you go. So sometimes it's simpler almost to live in an ignorant bliss where it's all spelled out simply, you know, mm-hmm. than it is mm-hmm. once you start like going, you can examine everything. And then once you ask this question, you're going to, instead of coming up with an answer when you explore it, you might come up with 10 more questions that all go in different directions. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the challenge, I guess, for me with that. How's it been for you? I guess, is there a No, I mean, one? I'm, I'm right there with you. I think, um, it's, it's one thing to, I mean, I think I was talking to a friend about this the other day because I think like a good sermon or a Bible study, it should open up conversations and not end them. Mm-hmm. And it should, it should open up questions and not answer the questions. And there are so many churches that want to give the answers because people do want that simple answer for things that they just don't have capacity or um, whatever it is they want to defer. And so it's just easier to have somebody just tell you how it is. And when you give that amount of power to somebody like a pastor or just one person, there is a lot that somebody can do with that power and learning to ask questions, going back with the text over and over again, even like returning to that same text years later and getting something completely different from it, having a whole other set of questions. I mean, that is like acts of faith, actually. That's like, that's Bible study. Mm. Right. And, um, but it's, but I, I think it's so, so easy for people to hold, try to hold on to that power. Like I, I, I know what's right. So I'm going to teach what I feel is right. Questions be damned. And that's when, these churches get into trouble and you have these celebrity pastors and you get these gurus. And, and I, I feel like it is really truly an act of faith for a pastor to give up that level of control. Mm. Yeah. It's really hard to do for a lot of pastors as we've seen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> sorry. I want to, tra- we can keep talking. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, I want to transition a little bit. Um, Bring us into some some slightly different spaces. First, I want to ask you about Kinship Commons. Um, yes, I, I'd I'd love to know about your work there. What What do you do? What is What is Kinship I Commons know. all about? I was hoping I you would go here. I want to know. People, what yeah, doing. people are like, "What do you do?" <laughs> because <laughs> because like my first year, and I got a pretty strong message that I wasn't going to be working at a church getting out. I went to school 
you understand, I was so washed up. I was burned out. I just came from a, a mega church that had melted down, had collapsed into itself. Um, and all these other spaces that in Christian justice spaces were also kind of melting down at the same time. Can I put a pause and, just on something? Cause I had a question for you on something you said earlier about the mega church. You said God told you that you're going to learn something there. Was there something there that you came away with? You said it melted yeah, down. I learned a lot of things. Well, I mm. saw a lot of things. So I was, I was, I was sexually harassed at the church. Um, I saw the fallout from the 2016 presidential election and how the church responded to that. And then, and the fallout, like the sort of the divide, the chasm was happening. Mm. And then, um, and then those allegations, because while I was working there, I just, I could not drink the Kool-Aid. Mm. My body would not mm. allow it. Like I, I, I wasn't doing a good job. I couldn't focus. I what was. What's the Kool-Aid? What's the Kool-Aid you're supposed to be drinking? Like the, the company, the company, the corporate, speak of a, corporate of a, yeah, yeah, like the core, um, what would you say? Like the corporate ideals, like the, yeah. like the rule book. I, I yeah. just couldn't ascribe. Churches have like the, I, I remember at one of the churches I worked for, they had, they had like the three C's, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all of their little jargon that they use to try to keep everybody to, to think about all of these things while you're working here. You know? Yeah. 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 I couldn't latch on to like their models of discipleship, like mm. sermon series were labeled as marketing campaigns. I mean, it was just like all these like little things. I was like, that doesn't um, impress me, nor do I want to be affiliated with that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that's the, I felt that the whole time um, I was like, something is just not right. Something is not right. Like beyond those little idiosyncratic things, something is just not right. And then when the, uh, when the accusations about Bill came out, that first news story, I was like, that's what it is. Mm. Like mm. at the root, I, the person mm-hmm. that everything is centered around, that wasn't right. That's so the common of thing. a story too, right? Like so common. That's sort of yeah. a feeling. And, and then all the different churches have it, whether it's Driscoll, yeah. whether it's Hillsong. It's a different way that it, the offness manifests itself, like that yes. things are a bit skewed and people can't put their finger on what's rubbing against them necessarily. Mm-hmm. And then the scandals start to come out and the inauthenticity and sort of the yep. abuse and the you know, the manipulation mm. and all the other, the other ways that, and they all act out differently in those different places, mm-hmm. but then it starts to connect dots of like, yeah, what's, yeah, what's, yeah, what's yeah. been unfolding. So after I graduated, I was like, all right, let's just, <laughs> we just see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so I got What were a, you hoping to do? I, I honestly didn't know. I had no idea. I just, I was just open. I got, I, I mean, I got job off. I got many job offers while I was in school. Um, because everybody was looking to diversify, of course. And I just, I didn't want to do that again. Um, because mm. I'd written about it so much too. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to go back there. Um, so I was just like, and then all of a sudden my friend, um, who is the chapel director at Fuller Seminary out in California, she called me up one day and was like, Hey, what do you think about, starting something where it's just focused on women of color and the marginalized and we build liturgies and worship and we don't center any sort of whiteness, like none. It's just, we build this for us. And I was like, sign me up, let's do this. So it was, it was her and I, and then two other women of color, one black woman, one um, Latina. And, and we, we started this company. So we, what we want to do is curate liturgy 
and sort of in a creative space where we could have a focus like women of color and purity culture, like things that you wouldn't take to a church and you may not even feel comfortable with your family and your friends. We wanted to create a space for that, Mm. like an experience, a curated, like artful, you know, using the arts embodied things to, to be in that sort of like community and experience that together. So people weren't just in isolation and alone. Mm. Yeah. Suffering alone in silence. So, um, so we wanted to create that. And so last year was sort of like a building year. We did a few conferences and built up like, you know, capital. And this year we're getting ready to um, host our first gathering. And yeah, that will be focused on women of color and purity culture, actually. And then um, releasing a few um, product offerings. So like doing a meditation and maybe some music. That will be like selling. Oh, cool. So, um, so it's, we're very much an infancy stage, but I'm excited about it. I think there's, there's a need for it. And, um, yeah, we want to create that space. Like we, we, we can do it. We know how to do this. So that's that Kinship awesome. Commons. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then another thing, um, with the critical convener, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing some work through Duke Leadership Education, which supports sort of Christian leaders, um, comes alongside Christian leaders. They realize that just a small percentage of their grantees are Asian American and they really want to change that. But as they are a Lilly funded, Lilly endowment funded um, organization and Lilly works off of the base of trust, they don't know anybody that they trust to like grant money to, but they're like, but Angie knows those people. So I'm sort of helping them identify like networks of Asian American leaders who are doing cool things that are going to sort of like be that are cool, just like cool people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just like overall cool people be like, Hey, what about this person? What about this person? And um, hopefully they'll just be like more known so that they can support them in different ways. Mm. So yeah, that, and then the writing thing I'm working on, yeah. I'm working on books and other sorts of articles, essays. So you got your plate full. <laughs> yeah, I've di- I, I've diversified my career. It keeps it really interesting and fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you make me think of Nate in that sense. He's like about a million in different interests. I know. I feel like directions. you're like that. Yeah, you know. I'm wondering do. is there is there one book or project like in terms of things you're writing about that is where your head is at these days and you're excited to have to dig into this and like it gets you going and like you just can't put your pen down and you can't stop typing when you get into the topic like what yeah is there a book kind of theme that you can tell us about or what is yeah I'll been- tell you just a general theme and that I will probably write about this for a long time is um I think. There's something very interesting about being Asian American, about not being white or black. There's something about liminality that is so, and and being sort of like in this middle space that can cause a lot of anxiety (laughs) and uncertainty. Um, But like through my work and processing and, and writing and doing all these other things, I've come to resignify it as kind of like a universe of possibility of creativity of um, a hybridity that can be really life-giving and to know that you're not alone Mm. um, I think is 
and not just for Asian Americans, um, but there's, there's a lot of different types of people who would fall into that, right? So like you may not be all the way one political ideology or another, like one dogma versus another. You may be somewhere in the middle that's not moderate, that's not scared, but that is like truly like leaning into things. Um, you may be a woman and not like a man, you know? So it's just, it's, it's just like learning to live really faithfully and flourishing in that sort of middle sort of space. Mm. And I think Asian American identity offers something very great about that, not being mm. white or black, like just not even fitting in like in most areas. Right. So like mm. I'm a, I'm Asian American. I'm not white or black. I'm a female, um, who who is in ministry and believes in women preachers and ministry and leaders. I am fully affirming and I'm a person of faith. I mean, like these things just like can't go together, but they do. Yeah, Yeah. but they do for me. And I have found life when I, when I don't try to ascribe to one or the other. Mm -hmm. So I'll be writing about that for a while. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of possibilities. That sounds like the kind of thing I would eat up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so. hope I hope you read stuff. <laughs> I hope yeah. you read my stuff. Mm, like, yeah, you certainly listen to all the podcasts. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I and I read as many articles as I could. That's so sweet. Yeah, and, Thank in, you. In the time that I had, I I definitely latched onto three. Um, your review of Minori was ah, mm. uh, it it hit me. Um, when I'm when movie. I'm sleep deprived, I get a little bit choked up at, very easily. And when I read it, I was pretty sleep deprived, and I I actually. Oh broke down weeping and I'm starting to get choked up now because I'm also sleep derived today. Um, but the, I, every Asian American, at least that I've talked to remember certain things about their childhood. We remember the first time we were ching chonged. We remember the first, we remember the nicknames that the other kids gave us. And when you, when you, when you wrote about the, the, the kid asking you, why is your face flat? You know, Mm-hmm. immediately brought me back to that was my nickname Flatface. that was my nickname and oh, it was it. Uh, I, it, it was it was something for me and then yeah. so after reading that i'm like it's a it's a shame that i haven't sat down and watched minari yet so uh oh. <laughs> so I, yeah so then at oh, the time wa- oh at, at the, the time, time okay, okay okay and then i watched so, it with him and i yeah, was really so, glad that he suggested that movie because yeah. wow so yeah. Yeah. and i sat down and watched Ooh. it together and um it was it was power. You know what? The, the other thing too, um, and I, I talked about this in the other episode. We we all kind of um, coalesced around this, but there's that. You know, Asian erasure is such a is is a topic, and and we hear these things about like, oh, you know, um, yeah, the BTS is is huge, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's so exciting. Yeah. J-pop had its day. The mm-hmm. um, the um, <laughs> did it though? You know, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, not really, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> So I, it, you're it's like K-pop. Sorry, it's, it's the it's the era. I get it. Like the internet when J-pop was big, the internet yeah. wasn't spreading things like wildfire, right? You know, so so K-pop is the, and I look. I get, like I love me some BTS. Don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> but um, we we were talking about the um the fact that the the Asians that are that are often thrown in our face as being like, hey, this is exciting for you. Yeah, are are yeah, not Asian Americans, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They, they're and they're not Asian American stories. I even oh. thought like Shang Chi. It's it was fine, you know. Marvel. I'm I'm a little Marvel fatigued, um, <laughs> but it was it was great to see someone 
it was great to see Simu Liu on screen yeah. leading yeah. leading man, you know, like having yeah. the sexy Asian man do the do the thing. And you're like, yes, this is exciting. I'm 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 on board. Um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, another one, like it, you know, seeing our seeing faces that look like us on the big screen in these leading roles that that just was empowering in one sense. But then the thing that was disappointing a bit about Shang-Chi yeah. was that um that's that's an Asian American potentially an Asian American story. It's this Asian kid who's grown up in California, you know, there's that relatability. And what does the movie do? It takes him away from California and throws him into mythical China and uh, you never speak mm-hmm. about his struggles as an Asian American. You never. And then also the thing that every Asian American who's grown up in this country, whether they are, you know, second gen, third gen, whatever, when they go back to their country of origin, they don't feel at home. But in Shang-Chi, you don't get that sense. It's a homecoming yeah. for him. So the yeah. Asian American, I felt like the Asian American was erased from that from that story and is often erased from a lot of pop culture so uh seeing a movie like the farewell mm. seeing a movie like minari mm. those those mm. films really speak to our experience and i would love to see more of that kind of stuff um yeah. uh, come out because man so. i mean and yeah don't get me wrong i do like seeing the other stuff but <laughs> the yeah the asian american experience is one that we don't talk to. I have a question for you that I I want to be the the ending question because it's fun and I'm okay. so curious. Okay, so for the the preface question, sorry because it's a, it's a lead up question. First, <laughs> and I I wanted to ask this in the up in the other episode, but didn't have time, and my internet connection was really shitty. But mm. now I feel like we've got a good robust internet connection. Food. What? How do you feel about food? Do you, is it something that that speaks to you? Is it is it a I love part food. of your okay? Okay. Nate's a foodie. You guys are connecting on that right now. Yes. Okay. So, um, what, what is your go-to comfort food Mm -hmm. that, that Mm -hmm. kind of fits with your family or your tradition or. So good. Oh, so many. Um, I think like, I mean, I just love a good jige, you know, a good stew. Um, yeah, I, I love a good, like yukejang, I think is my, Mm kind of like a go-to comfort food. I'm trying to think like something that's like really spicy. Oh, yeah. Um a good like kimchi jjigae, mm. a good even sundubu jjigae is comforting. I've never like had that's that. like my um sundubu jjigae. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like soft tofu in a spicy soup thing. Oh, um, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And kimchi jjigae is like a kimchi stew where right. the kimchi has to be like super super duper old for it to work. You have oh. to have like rotting, it never rots, it never dies, but like just like super fermented like the sourest. That's that's what makes like the best kimchi stew. Oh, okay. And we'll make that we go camping a lot, so we'll make that at the campfire, which ah. is really good. It's uh, yeah, it's comforting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's your comfort food? What I know Nate's answer to this one, hundred <laughs> percent. It's always for me. It's well, not always. Sorry, there's all sorts of. I I go everywhere with it. But, um, <laughs> I know what your so, number one is. Yeah, it's ramen, and it's not hmm. even what's what's funny about it. And I guess it's because I'm I'm Japanese American, but my dad's not a big ramen fan. Um, because he he's from Aichi Prefecture, and mm. ramen didn't really break through Aichi. Mm. They mm. have kishimen, which is a different type of noodle, 
okay. different type of broth. Mm. Um, and so that's what he, what he goes to, but Kishimen never broke Japan's borders, didn't become a thing in the, huh. in the U S mm. so, um, but ramen, sukumen, which is the, the, the ramen with the thick dipping broth. Mm. Um, and Man, I'm getting hungry. Ugh. And it's so <laughs> salty. And so it just, it just hits. Um, and then I, I love making, um, making a Japanese curry. I, oh, it's just, yeah. it's just so comfortable for me. It just, yes. it, it brings me back like that's yeah. that. And none of this is really healthy, but I like to believe it's healthy because it's not white people. food. <laughs> yeah. You know what I had the other day for the first time. So I, we also made kata like curry, but mm -hmm. the next we had some leftover. And then the next day I made like potato and we did that thing like poutine, man. It was so good. Ooh. It was so like a crispy potato okay. with kata. You just dip that thing. It is so good. I, I should have put cheese on it just to see if it, it would pan out. But I'm that like, sounds that's 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 in without that cheese. Sounds like Sorry, a the heart Montrealer attack. and Quebecer in me is just kicking into <laughs> high gear when you say food. Yeah. that is our comfort food No, but here. that's like the poutine. I, I really like poutine, but like when it had it with a Japanese car, oh, I was like next level. Like the I'm, I'm a little bit of a Quebec purist, so like I'm like okay. you gotta say Putin, not Poutine. Oh, I'm and sorry, got, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's how I differentiate because a lot of Canadians like to say it's their cultural food. When I'm like, it's a it's a Quebec dish, a French Quebec oh. dish. So so when Canadians appropriate it, they like to go Poutine. So right away I could tell. Oh, I'm like, okay. Yeah, so I didn't even know poutine. that. <laughs> okay, learn something new. You're saying poutine, so I know you're probably from outside of Quebec. That's one. <laughs> but then two, and I am. And yes. then I am. And so whenever I try poutine in other places, yeah. I'm always like, this is wrong. This yeah. is not how it's <laughs> no, supposed I to get taste. That. That's how I, I feel about Asian upset. fusion. Oh, yeah, fusion. The whole, the, when nuts. I hear the word fusion, when somebody says, I tried out this new fusion restaurant, I'm like, good for you. You can yeah. keep that for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I will not be participating. Really hard to do that. Yeah. Really hard to do it. Right? Yeah. There, yeah. there is one, there's a restaurant that opened up in Manhattan recently that I really want to check out. The Cajun uh, one? No, it's actually, oh. um, it's a Japanese Filipino restaurant. And oh. I'm like, oh, that is, yeah. that's me. <laughs> I've had <laughs> good fusion food. food, just not here. It's, like it's, it's only in LA and New York. I've had Viet crawfish, like in interesting. the, um, it's so good. Yeah, I'm going to have that again. I'm going to New Orleans soon. We have the crawfish boil. Wow. It's happening. I, I would, I've never been to New Orleans. So I, that, and that's something that I, that I off the hear about often is the, the crawfish. Um, I had a, a friend who's from New Orleans who did this whole like Mardi Gras party. He was actually on, on staff at, at my old church and he did this whole Mardi Gras party and, um, he, his wife made gumbo. It was, mm. it was, it was fantastic. Um, amazing. So okay, I'm definitely hungry now. Yeah. I'm go have a snack. Yeah. Go for it. All right. Angie, thank you so much. This was, thank uh, you. this was a wide ranging conversation. I'm so glad you joined us for it though. And, thank you so um, much for having me. Where can people find your stuff? Should they just do the Googles for you? Since you're all over the place. Do the Googles. So many <laughs> yeah, do, the Googles. <laughs> do you have a link tree? Um, I do have a link tree. Um, I'm on every social media platform, every platform, even my website is the same. Angie K Hong. So perfect. yeah, Instagram is Angie K Hong, Twitter, Angie K Hong, like even my website is Angie K Hong.com. So is there any other Angie K Hong? Are you the, the one? 
I'm hoping that I'm the one. I know there's a lot of Angie Hongs, which is why I put in the K, but... Nice. Yeah. Nice. I should be yeah. like the first one that pops up. <laughs> yeah. I actually have that. I, I, I feel very privileged in that um, I am always the first Nate Nakao that pops up. Um, mm. There Apparently, there's another one somewhere else floating mm. around, but okay. uh, that one did not jump on the uh, on grabbing the username quite like I did. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like, I dominate the Nate Nakaz yes. of the world. Yes. <laughs> oh, with that, Angie, thank you again. This has been fun. Um, I'm so glad you, you, uh, you joined us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast.